Hey, this is a shout out to all pharmacy owners out there, your champions of your community during this pandemic. Your pharmacy is more important than ever before. There's a product out there I'd like you to take a look at. I'm talking about the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack. For the same copay for your patients as pen needles alone, the UltiGuard Safe Pack provides 100 premium pen needles and a sharps container all in one. When pharmacies dispense the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack, they see consistently higher revenue and higher margins. Check this product out today and let us know what you think. Go to www.ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. That's ultiguardsafepack forward slash podcast. You can get a free sample pack on the website. Thanks for all you do as frontline healthcare providers. And thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You know, one of the most fascinating devices I remember as a kid, I was a big sci-fi buff. I'm, I'm still huge into sci-fi. And that was the tricoder used in the Star Trek movies. And it was a futuristic gadget that could instantly collect body information of that patient by scanning it over their head or their body. And sure enough, it would tell, um, it would tell exactly what was going on with that with that patient and now we fast forward this is probably i don't know the 70s 80s i was born in 72 so geez oh man it makes me feel old but today pharmacogenomics where you take a cheek swab and you get it read by a lab and you feed it into a system now called pharmazam uh pharmazam is an amazing organization that has taken um, you know, the PGX tests and now can tell patients, is this medication going to uh, work in your system based on your genetics versus someone else's genetics? All of this stuff and the future of uh, medicine, of a healthcare, the internet of things, artificial intelligence and drug development, and even blockchain. We are talking with a fascinating a person today that really has a a hold on this is uh, uh, is also very much uh, a, a curious person that that I met through C Suite, and uh, that's a, an amazing organization that really brings together some thought leaders in business, in healthcare, and technology. I'd like to introduce the Pharmacy Podcast to Rod Collins. He's author and keynote speaker. And he is the host of the Salt Flats Innovation Podcast. Uh, Rod, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Thank you very much, Todd. Good to be here. So my opening is based on an interesting um, blog and article that you released through Management Issues um, back in 2019. And it still plays very well into several scenarios that I'm experiencing in the pharmacy sector of healthcare. And I want to jump right in. First of all, give our listeners just a 
small background on yourself and why you're so fascinated with the transformational impact of technology on healthcare? Uh, well, I guess this audience may be interested. I spent over three decades with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. And uh, the last five years there, I was the chief executive of the program. Uh, and so one of the fascinating things I saw, I, I left in 2007, was the increase in spend in pharmaceutical benefits, uh, as I recall, went from about 8% to 30%. And as I was leaving, I realized, you know, a lot of the future of medicine really is going to lie in the pharmacy industry. Um, I, I left that in 2007, and I've been uh, independent since, really focusing on uh, management innovation and as affected by digital transformation. Digital transformation has fascinated me because I think it is more of a sociological than a technological change. Uh, and the reason I say that is what the internet in particular has done and all the technologies related to it is for the first time in human civilization, it has made the distributed peer-to-peer -peer network a practical and pervasive form of social organization. And so I think digital transformation at its heart is the fundamental architectural shift in the way the world works from centralized top-down hierarchies to distributed peer-to-peer -peer networks. And so that's what my work is now. Uh, I'm an author and a keynote speaker on this. And I also facilitate sessions uh, uh, called collective intelligence workshops where we can take advantage of the distributed peer-to-peer -peer network and its ability to leverage collective intelligence to higher level strategic solutions for organizations. I'm particularly pleased to be with you today because I feel that the least digital transformed industry in the world today is the healthcare industry. And I think that that is a shame because no industry has more impact on life and death than healthcare. And yet there are industries that I would call trivial that are far more advanced. So, uh, but I think that that's gonna change over the next couple of decades. And as, as we continue this conversation, I think we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. So I find technology really different today than, than what I was submerged in during the 90s and early 2000s through telecommunications, which is how I started my professional career out of college was in telecom specifically. And before the internet, we were selling um, T1s, uh, large um, data pipes in frame relay is what they called it. And frame relay was used between um, two or three, five, 10, 100 different locations they were interconnected that were sharing uh, packets of data and information and financials and ordering and trucking systems and logistics and all kinds of stuff, even health systems that were, were on it. And then 99, 2000 hit, and that's when really the, the internet exploded and really changed uh, technology from, a, from an understanding perspective and really accelerated um, the, the knowledge of, of business married with uh, technology. And of course, the electronic health record, um, you know, really advanced in, in many ways. And when I think of today, and I think of, um, you know, it's not a, 
it's not a mystery anymore. We know what we know what we need. We're, we're consumers. We're our handheld devices are are everything. We have our medical records on them. We have our social media on them. Our connections. Our banking. Our everything that's come to that. What I'm thinking of now is, you know, is to simplify things. And and what I'm wondering first is, as exciting as technology is. At times, it makes things extremely difficult and convoluted. How do you think we can move forward as a society using technologies to simplify things instead of, um, you know, the way it seems to be today? Um, it, it seems like things have become uh, quite complex. Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. Well, let's start with the complexity first. I I think that. What the digital transformation has done, one of its impacts is it's escalated the le level of complexity. And more and more in every industry, our problems are becoming more complex. One of the things I like to point out when I talk with business executives, and when, when you live in a centralized, top-down, hierarchical world, you're approaching the world as if it's a machine. And most of the problems and issues in the 20th century are what I would call issues of complication. And our whole approach to solutions was mechanical. So we break things down into parts. We divide labor. We have different people work on different things. They don't necessarily talk with each other. And if you think about it, healthcare is kind of designed that way. Uh, a lot of specialists don't necessarily talk with each other, but this is the whole way the world worked in the 20th century. So uh, centralized hierarchies and most of our systems are designed to handle what uh, handle issues as if they're mechanical problems. What the digital transformation is doing, it's changed the fundamental uh, context of problems from complicated to complex. And you can't solve complex problems with mechanical thinking. And this is why connectivity becomes very important. The only way you can solve complex problems is holistically. And when you try and solve uh, complex problems with mechanical means, then it seems more convoluted. It seems more overwhelming. We have difficulty solving problems. When you approach problems holistically, which means getting all of the voices in the same room at the same time, which centralized hierarchies are not designed to do, but distributed peer-to-peer -peer networks are, then you create the circumstances in which by having all points of view in the room, you can come up with really effective solutions to complex problems that are rather simple in their structure. So let me give you an example. I, re I referenced in, in our introduction that I facilitate collective intelligence workshops. Mm -hmm. I actually discovered this in the context of when I worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And a lot of your audience probably realize Blue Cross Blue Shield is not a centralized organization. It's very distributed. But we had been leading it as if it was centralized because that's the only way 20th century management operated. And at some point, we realized if we were going to be more effective, we have to learn how to lead a network. And so the collective intelligence workshop was a way to bring these diverse voices into the same space at the same time. And we organized the meeting so that we would minimize debate, which you tend to do with mechanical issues. Is this the right answer? Is that the wrong answer? 
And through facilitative techniques, we were able to blend the voices. And we discovered collective intelligence by accident. We actually designed the meetings so that they would minimize debates. And, and collective intelligence is something that emerged. But once we saw it, it became a tremendous tool. And it really uh, turned our particular business around. We increased market share. We built better systems. We had better products. All because we, were, we had this ability to solve our particular business problems holistically. With all the people in the same room at the same time, we came up with better solutions. The way it would play out is in the context of the meeting, we might have a problem and we think we've got a solution. And all of a sudden somebody jumps up and says, no, you can't do that. That's not going to work. And, and I, would, I remember thinking, why? It sounds like such an elegant solution. Well, once we heard them, we realized, oh, we create an unintended consequence that's going to fit, hit you. So now we have a third dimension that we have to add to the solution of the problem. And, some, and we would work and get to that point. And sometimes some other person would jump up and say, no, that's not going to work because he is the unintended consequence. By having all these people in the same room at the same time and solving organically, uh, we were able to identify two dimensions of the problem we were unaware of. Now, when we, when we took that solution and brought it out to the broader business community of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, people's reactions would be, that's very well thought out. How often do we hear in the context of organizations a, a mechanical solutions presented to the entire population in, in the organization? And a lot of people sit back and go, well, that's not going to work. But their voices aren't heard because they're told, well, the decision's been made on high. We have to go forward. And so by, hand, by having mechanisms in which you can, can get people connected and solve problems holistically, that's the only way you can solve complex problems. And the interesting thing is when we would come up with that solution after getting all, all the different points, to, points of view together, Oftentimes, the solution would have like three or four core elements that would almost act like a simple set of rules that made sense, and they could drive behavior on the part of distributed people so that as they worked on the disparate details, by them aligning with these four uh, core elements of the simple solution, things could work in a distributed fashion. And that's what we see in highly effective distributed networks. So let's unpack uh, some of the things that you've written about, which I find really interesting. First of all, you had said that you believe based on technology in the hands of our physicians and our pharmacists that, um, that we'll be moving from chemistry to biology um, based on the leverage of things like DNA, like we just, in the opening, I mentioned pharmacogenomics in utilizing the power of, of what PGX can do for the average person that's wondering if a medication is going to work on them versus someone else on, on their DNA. Can you kind of uh, go into that a little bit? Sure, sure. I, you know, I think one of the big areas developing, I think the pharmacy industry sees this, is I think biogenetics will be extremely transformative over the next decade or two. And I believe that in the next decade or two, the industry 
the healthcare industry will move from the laggard in digital transformation to probably the front of the class. Um, but so by way of introduction, um, to answer your question, I think right now we are on the cusp of the transition from the first wave of the digital revolution to the second wave of the digital revolution. The first wave is driven by the single engine of the internet. And uh, not every industry was affected. If you were in media entertainment, if you were in retail communications, your industries were turned upside down because their products were essentially digital or could be easily digitized by people. So take the music industry. I mean, they were stunned when simple consumers could digitize their products and start, uh, start exchanging them. And although they put Napster out of business, they couldn't kill the digital model. The core, uh, the core economic industries, things like healthcare or energy, um, food processing were unaffected because their products could not be easily digitized in the first wave of the digital revolution. And so what digitization meant was they, they could save a lot of paper uh, by putting things online, but their essential business and product models remain the same. The second wave is, we're on the cusp of that now, and I think it's just beginning, and it has two engines. And the two engines will be internet of things and blockchain technology. The internet of things in particular, I think can be very transformative for healthcare because if we can connect all of the data, we open up possibilities for new business, for new product models. The reason healthcare is lag lagging is nothing's connected. So we have these incredibly state-of-art machines, but they, they just work within their particular local environment and none of the data in them is connected with the rest of the data throughout the world. This is where the internet of things will come in. So as all of this data is connected, it opens up new possibilities of information. Now, the internet of things is gonna wind up putting sensors in everything, probably including pills, probably will have sensors inside our bodies. And so for the first time, healthcare will be able to know the state of health not just externally with the presentation of symptoms, but internally as we see changes in, in, uh, in, in, you know, in, in cellular structures. So if cancer forms, a lot of times we don't know it until it presents itself as a bodily system. But what if you could identify cancer at the moment it starts mm -hmm. and this type of capability exists? This is why biogenetics becomes so important. And what if, if pharmacy is now shifting from treating symptoms, controlling the, the, uh, uh, the presence of symptoms, and now becomes the primary agent for wellness and prevention, uh, and through biogenetics, and essentially shifting from hardware to software. And I think that will be a big change in pharmacy, is that our methods, uh, you know, will go from hardware to software. So what might that look like? Let's take the pandemic we've just gone through, all right? Uh, what if healthcare was a highly connected industry? What if when these pathogens first presented themselves, we could see it? What if China couldn't hide its information because it's fully connected into a global Internet of Things uh, situation and what if they didn't need to hide it? 
because we could, we could mitigate its effects at the point of its presentation. And what if the way you handle a pandemic in the future is once we recognize these anomalies, we're able to biogenetically adjust the human body so this pathogen can do no harm. This is what the future of healthcare looks like and its foundations can shift from hardware to software. So the next time a pandemic presents itself, we don't have to wait to produce hundreds of millions of doses, which is what we have to do now. We're able to write a software program. That software program is able to get ahead of this disease. These are the possibilities I think that exist as the internet of things becomes an intricate part of the practice of healthcare. It also means that the locus of intelligence is going to shift from the individual physician to the collective intelligence that we will derive from the artificial intelligence algorithms that will emerge from uh, this new type of system. And this doesn't threaten the, in, the, uh, the role of the physician, it amplifies it because we have the possibility for a human machine symbiosis that will make the physician far more intelligent. We're still going to need human judgment. It's just that we're going to have multiple infinitesimal times the information available for these highly intelligent people. And the error rates in diagnosis, the error rates in practice are likely to go way down and will make our physicians even more intelligent and more effective than they are today. And I think the same thing would apply to the pharmaceutical industry. I like your reference of uh, Amir Hussein's um, book called The Salient Machine, The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence, making the point that you know AI is not just another technology, but really a level up in, in the form of of intellect in the form of intelligence in the form of being able to utilize information at our disposal there's a ton of data that is just that it's just data and if you can't use it then what good is it whereas artificial intelligence is is accelerating to be able to literally use data to do things like predictive analytics we see predictive analytics happening in the stock market there have been several movies being made about um, predictive analytics in the world of the stock market. But in the world of healthcare, predictive analytics could be used in the same method, in the same way. Artificial intelligence looking at hot spots in the globe um, where, um, where there's a breakout of, of some kind of a virus or something like that. What do you think of um, a Mr. Hussein's uh, you know, book and reference to artificial intelligence in the fusion of humanity with AI? I think he's spot on. I mean, he defines artificial intelligence as a new form of intelligence, a higher level of intelligence. And I know that there is, uh, uh, there are two perspectives on AI out there. There's the utopian and the Orwellian. And I think both of them require attention. And because I believe that the most critical geopolitical, socioeconomic battle over the next two decades will be what model of AI prevails? Is it the Orwellian, and, and I'm using these terms rather glibly, or the utopian? 
Right now, the Chinese Communist Party is the leader in the Orwellian type of artificial intelligence. Their picture is they want to build not a distributed network, they want to build a centralized network where they will be able to exercise the highest level of control that any human organization has ever achieved. And that is not the picture of AI that we want, to, that we want because it really would be Orwellian. The other alternative is to build a distributed artificial intelligence network. But in doing that, and here's the rub, you have to give up control. And control has been the mechanism of all industries throughout the 20th century. Hierarchies are designed for control. Whether you are a physician leading your small little hierarchy of a practice, whether you are a business leader leading an organization, hierarchies of how we've got things done, we can't imagine how things would get done if people aren't in charge. The artificial intelligence will be beneficial if we have the courage to build systems where no one is in charge. And the way you do that is you have to structure it and design it as a collective intelligence system. James Surawiecki wrote a wonderful book uh, about a decade ago called The Wisdom of Crowds. And what is most, I, I think, essential in that is they identify the four characteristics that are essential to build a collective intelligence system. The first is you must have diversity of opinion. All voices have to be heard, none squelched, none retaliated against. None of us sees reality as it is. All of us, even eccentrics, see some element of reality. Second thing is you have to have independent thinking. People must be free to express their points of view without fear of retaliation. Yep. Third, you need a lot of local knowledge and artificial intelligence and local knowledge can be not just what people see, but also what uh, AI can see. And there's a lot of knowledge that we can't see that will be available to us. And the fourth is you need an aggregation mechanism, some way to bring all of these different points of view together. If we build artificial intelligence in that way, nobody will be able to control it. How do we know that? Well, we have this thing called blockchain. And blockchain is the IT system in which we need to build AI in the future. Blockchain, by definition, is a structure in which no individual agent can control it. It can only be moved by the collective intelligence within the system. Now, people are familiar with this because of Bitcoin. And to show you how individual control doesn't work, there is a person out there who lost their particular key. And a key in a blockchain system, unlike a key in systems as we know it, the way systems work is the key in the system matches the key outside the system. When those two things are identical, we get in. That's what passwords do. Well, why can hackers get in easy? Because if they can find the password in the system, that's your password, then they present themselves as you, the password's match, and you're in it. Blockchain doesn't work that way. There's a public key and a private key, and they're not identical. They just recognize each other when they see each other. And there's no way to know for a hacker to get in the system and to look at the what's called the public key 
and know how to get your private key. And so some poor soul lost his private key and he has a fortune, literally millions of dollars in blockchain, that, that Bitcoin rather, that is forever gone because it can't be hacked. And the reason is, is this key structure. So a blockchain uh, and helps prevent hacking and fraud. And that will be important for healthcare because as things get become connected, if we don't change IT systems, the blockchain, then people could literally hack in and might have the ability to kill other people. And we can't have that. And yet we want to avail ourselves of this tremendous, of these tremendous possibilities. And so if AI is built in a blockchain context, then you have the complete antithesis of the Chinese Communist Party's vision of what AI should be. But it means nobody will be able to control it. And no, nobody in an industry, nobody in the government. Um, uh, and so, but these systems will be able to develop higher, higher levels of intelligence. And my experience from working with the collective intelligence workshops is that when collective intelligence is the pathway for which a system produces its intelligence, it tends to be inherently benevolent and it tends to be inherently unbiased, which is why an out complicated situation back in, when I was inside the blues, we were able to accomplish what we never could before. And that is to get 36 uh, organizations to unanimously agree on a course of action that had always deluded, eluded us before because debates are about who's going to control the dialogue. And so by creating a, a, uh, a methodology whereby we ended the debate, we, we shut down the ability to control the discussion. And it is in that context that we discovered this incredible phenomenon of collective intelligence. If we can avail ourselves of this in healthcare, then uh, the opportunity for benevolence goes very high. If AI is built in this context, then it will not be Orwellian, it will be utopian. But all governments, I think, will resist it, including the American government, because governments don't like systems that don't have control. One last thought, it's why I think Satoshi Nakamoto remained anonymous. The, whoever he, she, or they are, it is a brilliant structure. And I think it's the structure of IT systems going forward. And I think remaining anonymous was important because at some point, if they were known, some government would probably want to jail them for what they've created. But I think it opens up new possibilities for all institutions, for us to operate at a much higher level and a more uh, benevolent level of intelligence. So if listeners are, are as fascinated as I am and want to connect with you, what's the best way to reach out to you? I'm going to put your Twitter and your LinkedIn in the show notes, but uh, what's the suggestion from, from you, uh, Rod? Uh, best way to reach me is, is probably through LinkedIn. That's easiest for people. Um, I, I use that as my website. Uh, uh, yeah. Me too. Um, and at Collins uh, Rod on Twitter, um, but we'll have linkage in the show notes to follow um, Rod on LinkedIn. I need you to come back because I think we should have conversations with um, with uh, Gil Bash from Finn Partners and John Nosta from Nosta Lab. 
Um, there's uh, digital philosophers out there who um, I would love to get conversations with you going about where healthcare is going because of the uh, the embrace, the, how we've embraced technology and how it's going to help um, close the gap in, in the health disparity realm. Um, I don't think we should have anyone, especially, for example, in the 300 million, um, you know, citizens of the United States, none of us should be without health care. And, and, and there's ways to leverage technology to ensure that that is the case. But um, we still have work to do. And um, conversations like this really help us advance and forward the, the minds of our providers, uh, the pharmacists that are out there, the physicians that are out there working together, and the leverage of, of technology is so important. Um, this, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I thank you for participating with us today, Rod. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here, and I look forward to future conversations. Thanks, Todd. Absolutely. You were listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation with Rod Collins. We will have contact information for Rod in the show notes. And as always, I thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Nation.